If you have your Bible today, and I do hope you do have it with you, turn with me to James chapter 2, or the uh, text for today is printed on page 10 in your bulletin. I'm going to focus in on verses 12 and 13 particularly. Let's just hear this, and then uh, we'll break it open a bit. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, now that you'll just really move in our hearts as we meet you in this text. In Jesus we pray. Amen. The first memoir of an American ex-slave was written in 1825. Second edition came out in 1855, 30 years later. It was a story of a, a slave named William Grimes. He escaped slavery in Virginia. He tells in this memoir about a time when a number of wine bottles were committed to his care by his, ma- his white master, and one was stolen by a, a, another white worker on the plantation. And the master accused Grimes of the theft. And the master refused to believe that Grimes was innocent, despite the fact that he had an impeccable record as a slave. He had never done anything against the master. And even after that other white worker came to the master, admitted the theft, and offered to pay, the master still insisted that Grimes was guilty. And the account of the beating that he received for that offense, quote-unquote, is just harrowing to read. But more striking is what Grimes says about his inward response to that injustice. I'm quoting him here now. He says, It grieved me very much to be blamed when I was innocent. I knew I'd been faithful to my master, perfectly so. At this time, I used constantly to pray to my God, I would not lie nor steal. When I considered my master's accusing me of stealing when I was so innocent and had had endeavored to make him satisfied by every means in my power that I was so, but he still persisted in disbelieving me, I then said to myself, If this thing is done in a green tree... What must be done in a dry? I forgave my master in my own heart for all this and prayed to God to forgive him and to turn his heart. I was dissatisfied to think that my master had so bad an opinion of me at the time I was so honest and tried my best best endeavors to please him, unquote. If this thing is done in a green tree, what will be done in a dry? You know, Grimes knew his Bible very well because that is a quote from Jesus. Jesus is on his way to the cross And the women of Jerusalem are weeping, and he says, Do not weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. You weep for yourselves and for this city, because they do these things when the wood is green. What will they do when the wood is dry? 
Behold, the days are coming, Jesus said, when they will say to the mountains in this city, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it was dry? And Grimes prayed for mercy, like Jesus told the daughters of Jerusalem to cry out for mercy, because he knew the wood's even green right now, but when the wood is dry and the fire is lit, judgment is coming for the merciless. Despite all the trappings of, you know, religious piety among the slavers and Virginia, you know, they pretended to be Christians. They professed to be Christians. Despite all their trappings of piety, they were merciless. And Jesus knew judgment's coming for the the city that killed their Messiah. William Grimes knew judgment's coming for the merciless in his slave situation. And Albert Robiteau from Princeton makes an interesting comment about this. He says, speaking about William Grimes, he says, if Jesus came as the suffering servant, who resembled him more? the master, or the slave. Well, it's not long after Jesus said those words, that they do these things when the wood is green, what's going to happen when it finally dries out and the fire is lit. Not long after he said that, James wrote, wrote this letter. And by this time, the tree of old Israel, you know, the organized Judaism of the second temple, that it, it, was, it was dead. It was, a dry, it, was, it was a tree that was dead, and it was just drying out, and, and you know, it had killed its Messiah, cut itself off from the life that God had given to the seed of Abraham, and so, you know, that tree was drying out, and it was going to be burned to the ground in AD 70, and what God has done now is he's brought a new tree out of the faithful stump of, of those who, in, in Israel who, who, you know, followed the Messiah, Jesus, and so James is now writing to this new Israel of God, not just believing Jews, but believing Gentiles now, and his concern in this letter, dear saints, and I really want to encourage you today, I know it's hot in here, but I want you to work with me, because he's talking to us too, we're still part of this tree, we're still part of this this new Israel of God, James is very concerned because he does not want in this new Israel that's forming around Jesus, he does not want them like old Israel to have faith that doesn't bear fruit. You can have faith and be dead, quote-unquote faith. We're going to talk about that next week. You can have all kinds of religion and all kinds of, you know, you can profess the right creeds and have the right theology on paper and you can be dead. It can be fruitless. James is concerned that that not be true in this new Israel of God. You know, we're going to, you know, the, the Jewish Shema, the, the basic creed of the Bible is, listen, Shema, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the basic theology of Israel. It's the basic theology of the Christian church. The Lord is one. This is the living and true God. We worship him alone. That's our confession of faith. But, you know, the old Israel could mouth Shema, mouth the creed, and kill the Messiah. The leaders of Jesus' generation were, were just, the religious leaders at that time were just sold out to the standards and priorities of the Roman world. And, and, and James knows something. He knows that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they had said that when Messiah comes, God's going to do a crazy thing. He's going to take the Torah, the law of God. He's going to write it on the heart. He's not just going to give us tablets. Here's what to do. He's going to write that law on the heart. And now in this new people of God built around Messiah, there's going to be true faith. Yes, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, the Shema, but that, that confession of faith is going to work by love. It's going to bear fruit. We're, the law in the heart means we're not going to have religion, people showing up and doing religious things while their tongues are unbridled, their passions are at war, they're neglecting the needy, and they're showing favoritism toward the rich and the powerful, with all the stuff that James has been talking about. Now, it's interesting in this chapter that James, he's gone after that whole matter of partiality. You know, look, the wealthy, let's cater to them. 
We don't really care so much about the poor because they have nothing to offer. He's, he's really showed, if you're a real believer in God, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you cannot look at people who follow him, no matter how poor and shabby and unimpressive they might be, and look down on them and dishonor them. They're Jesus people. It doesn't matter what their worldly status is. Jesus people are your people. And he just really goes after that in the first 11 verses. But then it's interesting in verses 12 and 13, you'll notice he kind of zooms out now to show that's just one application of the basic standard of kingdom ethics. That, that refusal to show partiality to the rich is just one expression of what he calls in verse 8 the royal law, the, the, the basic ethic of Jesus' kingdom. And what I want to just talk about real quickly today is I want to talk about that basic standard. James shows us in verse 12 the standard of Jesus' kingdom, the, the moral standard. And then in verse 13, what's at stake in living by that standard? So what's our standard and then what's at stake? We're going to begin in, begin in verse 12. Here's the standard. One application of this standard is don't show partiality to the rich, but let's just back up and see the bigger thing. There is a standard for God's people. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under what? What's it say? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged under what? The law of liberty. Now, when I studied for the bar exam a long time ago, I'll never forget, I spent eight weeks holed up with some buddies in Florida because I knew that judgment was coming. <laughs> I, judgment was coming. I was about to have my knowledge of the law measured by a very definite standard, and it was going to be a very big deal. What's interesting, I use that illustration because it was a standard I wanted to rise to. I wanted to be a law guy. <laughs> I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be what that standard represented. I mean, I was terrified, but I was also inspired. I was energized. I wanted to be that. Well, that's kind of what James is saying here. There is judgment coming for Christians, let me say that again, because I actually don't know, I don't hear this talked about a lot in, in churches. There is judgment coming for you people. It's easy to look out at the world and say, people who are outside of, they don't worship God, they don't follow Jesus, they're going to be judged. True. And so are you and I. Our words and our actions, speak and act, are going to be measured by a very, very definite standard. You say, well, it doesn't sound like the rest of the New Testament. It, it does. I mean, the Apostle Paul says this very thing. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, beloved. You, you, you know, as surely as I was going to sit for the bar exam, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether it's good or evil. And we will be judged with these kinds of questions. Have we been swift to hear? Have we been slow to speak? Slow to wrath? Doers of the word? Have we bridled our tongues? Have we visited the orphans and widows? Have we kept ourselves unstained from the world? Have we honored the poor? These kinds of things. Judgment's coming for those things. And, and then the immediate thing I suppose that probably jumps to mind for most of us, and it did for me reading this, is, well, isn't that incompatible with grace? Because we believe with all of our hearts, and it's absolutely basic, that Jesus took our judgment. Amen? In a very real sense, I'm not going to face judgment. My judgment was taken by Jesus. That's what the cross means. God judged him. He condemned him in my place. And my sins are forgiven, and they're forgiven freely. I don't have to do anything to make that so. God freely forgives my sins. So how can you say, on one hand, that judgment has already been you know, exhausted in, in, in what ha Jesus did on the cross, and then turn around and say, and you are going to be judged by your works on judgment day. It's coming soon. This is where, dear saints, can I just say, we need to learn how to read our Bibles. I, I don't mean this to be combative, but I don't think many Christians today know how to read their Bibles. We're not careful. If you've been following James carefully, you know where this idea of the law of liberty 
what it actually is referring to. Now, the law, you know, the word law for the Jew, you know, this meant the Torah of Moses, you know. But the law of liberty, as James calls it here, the law, the Torah of liberty is something more. Can I ask you something without looking? Have we ever heard this phrase before in James? See, I'm checking to see how many of you guys have been reading. We don't read carefully. And so we pounce on a verse and try to figure it out without necessarily paying attention. We've heard this before. Because if you back up in the chapter... Uh, actually, to chapter 1, verse 25, if you have your Bible, you can see it. The law of liberty, James mentioned this back there, and he also called it the perfect law into which we are to look. Okay? But he said something else. He said that looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevering in it is the same thing as being a doer of the word, which means the perfect law and the law of liberty is the word. What word? Well, he talked about the word earlier in chapter 1. The word... He said in chapter 1, verse 22, the word that the God implanted in us. And he implanted it in us, backing up to verse 18, when by his word he brought us forth. He made us his children. So this is all connected. The word that made us children is the same as the implanted word of God that saves our souls, is the same as the perfect law, which is the law of liberty that James is talking about here. It's all the same thing. Now let's just stop and think about what that means. It means that this law of liberty is God's law, it's his moral will, but it's the, it's the law of God that is implanted or written on our hearts by the word of God's free grace in Jesus. Can I say that again? It is the moral will of God that grabs your heart when the gospel of God's grace to you through Jesus enters in and, and captures your heart. See, this is the thing. It's the law of God shining through Jesus, shining through our Savior. Now, beloved, this is really important. If you meet the law of God without Jesus, guess what the law does to you? You are in serious doo-doo if you meet the law of God without Jesus because that law will command you and it will condemn you, but that's all it can do. Those tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai could do exactly one thing, tell you what to do and what's going to happen if you don't. That was it. It was all it could do. It was powerless to give power to people to obey it. It could show you how much you need a Savior. It could show you how far short you fall. But that's all it could do in itself. But then along comes Jesus, and he says, I'll take all the condemnation. I'll take all the judgment. And when you hear that word, That word of God the Father that says, I've killed my son for you. I've condemned him for you. When you hear that word of what God has done for you, beloved, hear me, it does something in you. When you really encounter and and God gives you the grace to rest in it and receive it, it's done. It's finished. My debt is paid. I am forgiven. I am loved. I'm a child of God. When that actually hits your heart, it changes you. It absolutely turns your world upside down because it it gives you life because what it does is it shatters your terror of God. You don't run from God anymore. You don't run like Adam and Eve to find a bunch of fig leaves so you can stand in his presence. You're free in his presence. His presence is now, this terrifyingly holy presence of God is, is your home. This is your father. You're loved here. You're welcome here. You don't have any hatred for this God anymore because he loves me. It also shakes you out of your accursed apathy. 
Because it's, re- you know, it's like moments when my, it hits me how much my wife loves me. I'm just, I'm just shaken to be a better man. And when you realize how much God loves you, it changes you, man. It, it gets into your heart, and it writes the law of God's own love on your inner being. You're no longer a slave to sin. Just can't wait to get away from God and go do my thing. I want to be with him. I want to live for him. And I am freed by this word that gives liberty to start speaking and acting like a child of God, righteously. The law of liberty is God's law under the gospel. That's what it is. Under the good news of free grace. James could have said it this way. So speak and so act as those whose standard is God's love for you and in you. That's a way of thinking about it. So speak, talk every day, and act every day as those who are going to be judged by the fact that God's love is for you and in you. Speak and act every day as those who are going to be judged as God's children whom he loves and are empowered by his love to love. Speak and act every day as those in whom God's own love has been implanted. That's the law of liberty. God's law through Jesus. Now you'll notice in verse 13, if God's love is written in your heart, if that is the engine of your ethical life, God loves me. I am his. I am not my own. I am bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. You'll notice in verse 13, what is especially going to start characterizing your life is an amazing mercy called, amazing virtue called mercy. Speak and act every day as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty, the law mediated through Jesus and his saving work, because judgment is going to be without mercy to the one who doesn't show mercy. Mercy boasts over judgment. I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that the law of liberty is simply the mercy of God that makes people merciful. God's mercy makes us merciful. And it is a life of being merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. That is the life that on judgment day is going to boast in the judgment. Stand tall. Stand without shame. And that brings us to what's at stake. So there's the standard, the law of liberty. What's the standard? What's at stake? This is pretty heavy stuff in verse 13. If you are not merciful, there'll be no mercy. Now this, by the way, is straight out of Jesus. Jesus is uncomfortable on this point. Every time we say the Lord's Prayer at the end of our worship service, I am mildly troubled by this line, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus could not have been any blunter, any clearer, that if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you don't show mercy, you'll not receive mercy. Nobody who has really received God's merciful love and has that merciful love written on your heart can be merciless. Now, do be, let's be clear. You can be extremely religious and merciless. You can be extremely religious and be merciless to the Son of God. You can be absolutely religious and be merciless to people who are Jesus people. But you cannot truly have received the mercy of God in your heart of hearts as the Holy Spirit just enables you to rest in the fact, God forgives me. I'm clean. You cannot really receive that, Jesus tells us, and be merciless. Remember the parables he tells, like, for example, about the rich man and Lazarus? The religious rich man undoubtedly went to synagogue and did all of the rituals that needed to be done to, you know, 
have your credentials as a faithful Jew of the time, and what happens to Lazarus, that poor guy sitting out at his gate, starving every day, eating the scraps thrown to the dogs? And guess where the rich man ends up? In torment, horrific torment, while the poor man, Lazarus, is comforted. And Jesus is making a real point here. You'll remember the other parable he tells about the servant. He was forgiven like a million bucks. I mean, he had a massive debt, absolutely beyond paying. He would have spent his entire life in debtor prison. There was no chance of paying this debt. The master just decides to forgive him. He just writes off the debt. He says, it's done, it's forgiven. The servant goes out and he finds another servant who owes him the equivalent of like $20 American money. And he's got his hands around his throat. Pay me what you owe. And Jesus basically says, this is you and your father in heaven. How can you be out choking somebody? If you understand the mercy of God, what is mercy? I absolutely love Sinclair Ferguson's definition of mercy. This is probably the best I've ever heard. It really helped me this week. What is mercy? It's simply this. It's relieving the consequences of sin at personal cost. That's mercy. It's relieving the consequences of sin at personal cost. Sometimes mercy is forgiving. There's forgiving mercy and there's giving mercy. Sometimes mercy is forgiving. Sometimes you have to relieve the consequences of sin because there should be consequences for sin. There are people in your life who deserve judgment. There are people in your life who have committed cruel injustices against you. The slave master, in the case of William Grimes. There are people who do hateful, disgusting, exploitative, abusive things. Some of you are on the receiving end of that. Or they do just mildly annoying, sinful things. I mean, you know, there's a range of sins that we commit against each other, but forgiving mercy is the ability to see the humanity beneath the depravity. To look at a human being, astonishing, you read the stories of some of these slaves. See, there was one, another slave I read about this week. He was in the same church as his master. And he was abused by this master, and he wrestled mightily with how he was to regard this master as a brother in Christ. see not just humanity, but even somehow see a Christian across the divide created by chattel slavery. The slave, by the way, working on that problem, not the master. And refuses to judge someone irredeemable. Refuses to say, God damn you. Refuses to say, vengeance is mine isn't attempting mercy mercy i can forgive i can let vengeance be the lord's he's a very 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 competent judge i can hope i can pray for this master as i'm being beaten i can pray that god will be merciful to him that god will change his heart that's extraordinary moral strength that's something only a follower of jesus can truly do that's forgiving mercy and we could talk a lot about what it means to then live, you know, so does that mean that the relationship of slave and master should continue? Does that mean the relationship of abuser and abuse should continue? No, it doesn't. That's another conversation. But there's this basic heart that says, vengeance is the Lord's, and my desire is that there would not be merciless judgment on this person. I can see the humanity even in the most ugly depravity, and I would hope for better things for this wretched sinner. Sometimes mercy is giving mercy. It's not so much that you're seeing someone who's sinning, Sometimes you just find, and you guys, you know, you know what this is like. You're just walking around, and, you know, there's a lot of rubble in this world from violence, a lot of rubble in this world from neglect. Sometimes you just meet someone who's been violated. They've been 
cast aside. They're lying by the side of the road, bleeding. And the religious leader's just walking on by because they have better things to do. You go to this person, you bind up their wounds, and you put them on your donkey, and you take them to the inn. You pay for medical care. That's giving mercy. Personal cost to relieve the consequences of sin. Mercy like Jesus is willing to pay the price to relieve the consequences of sin. It does not get more basically Christian than that. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. The very first thing God says about himself when he wants to describe his glory to Moses is the Lord, the Lord God. What's the next word? Merciful. Merciful. You want to be on the front line of God's new creation? You want to be on the front lines of his restorative grace in this world? You want to be a real radical? I love young people today. I sense that spirit of revolution burning in many, many young hearts. They want to just get beyond the system, get beyond the establishment, be a true radical. You want to be a real radical in this world? Maybe you just need to get off social media and go cultivate a heart of mercy in view of the mercies of God. What are you doing to relieve the consequences of sin? What are we doing together? What are we building together to relieve the consequences of sin? We need to not just talk about it and just emote about it and, you know, throw up dust and, you know, whatever it is we do on social media. We need, what does it mean to have a heart and to have hands working out of that heart that are relieving the consequences of sin at cost? Is there ever a generation that needed mercy more? In a just fantastic article Tim Keller wrote called The Fading of Forgiveness. He points out, in our generation, is we're losing mercy. We are schooled to believe that life is about your personal happiness. And may I say, that is left-wing and right-wing. Please, can we get over the idea that any of us are exempt from that ideologically? We are schooled to believe that life is about you and your personal happiness and your stuff and your comforts. That's, just, that's the catechism of our day. And over time, as that gets into your soul, it gets into your heart, it makes you kind of vindictive, honestly, toward anyone who infringes on your rights, your liberties, and your comforts. Keller says, quote, Mercy directly opposes how Americans are now taught to think and live. We're taught self-realization and assertion that your happiness, interests, and needs always come first. Look out for number one, yes? A culture promoting self-maximization, one that pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, will usually produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment. While a counterculture teaching self-renunciation will much more likely produce forgiveness, I would add, and generosity as a response. And he goes on to say something very, very powerful about how this is distinctively Christian. He says, Christians root their moral norms in the divine justice of God, which also means grounding our moral norms in the mercy of God. And so, patience, mercy, forgiveness of wrongdoers, that's always been a part of Christian ethics. But today, culture does not root its moral absolutes in the divine. We no longer ground our values in the sacred. We simply treat the values themselves as sacred. Do you hear that move? We don't ground our values and our ethics in something bigger than us. We just treat them as the thing that's sacred in itself. You don't need God to have sacred moral norms. The moral norms are sacred. Why? Because we say so. And Keller says this leads to a lack of provision for mercy and forgiveness. Because when the moral norms are detached from faith in a just God, 
It detaches them also from faith in a merciful and loving God and forgiving God. And in such a secular religion, deviation from norms is simply unforgivable. It is actually shocking to see the hatred with which people go after those who have breached the the moral norms of our time. And believe me, we have them. We haven't gotten less moralistic, have we, as a secular culture? But they're not grounded in a God who is just or a God who forgives, and so there is really no basis for forgiveness when those norms are violated now. But it's not just in social currents that we have to swim against as we're seeking to become merciful following Jesus. There's a lot of inward pushback, too, don't you find? It costs. I'm almost done. It costs. Forgiving mercy costs. Because to forgive humbles your pride, doesn't it? Humbles your sense of entitlement. It is very, very easy. I, I, I'm, I'm actually just so, it just, just burns inside of me sometimes. I'm, I will look at people and I so quickly forget what I've been forgiven. I really honestly, beloved, look at people and I'm like, compare, I really, I, I make the judgment in my heart that compared to this person, I'm actually pretty decent, which is the only way you can explain that just, the, the, sometimes just the, 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 maybe it's as strong as scorn, just it's the, the sense of just kind of moral loathing that I can feel towards people, and you know, there's, there's something to be said for a kind of loathing of sin, but when your heart toward a sinner is just like, you're, you disgust me, you're, you know, you're just, how can you, it's almost like, I hear people say now, like, those people aren't even human, they don't deserve to live like that. How, how much forgetting of our own debt has to happen for that kind of pride? I'm going to punish you. Forgetting that I'm also an object of God's judgment. Forgiving mercy tests our patience, doesn't it? Because when you know you're a sinner and someone else is a sinner and you're in process and so are they, it, it requires patience. You can still call their sin, sin. You can still see they fall short of the glory of God, as do I. But it brings a certain reasonableness, a certain forbearance. You can't be really, really hard on people, impatient with people, when you understand the mercies of God. But there's cost in patience to slow down. Give God time. Don't be rigorous with people. And giving mercy costs. You know, generous mercy costs. When God puts, you know, that man on the road to Jericho in front of you, it, it just shakes you out of your comfort. I, it's, we, I, I like being comfortable. I don't, I don't like being disturbed by other people's need. Shakes you out of your apathy. It shakes you out of the outsized wanting. Can I say to you who are young, you know, I, you're, you're being raised in a culture where you have so much. We say this all the time, but you know what? It gets in your head. It gets in your heart. It gets in your belly. You think you just want so much. You, 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 there's so many things that, that glitter and, and, and they just seem like they make life so much better and when you're living that way it just blinds you to, to need and there are needs right in front of you and James says some very sobering words look what awaits the merciless look what awaits the one who just keeps walking past need and not seeing it or the one who is just harsh with other people's debts forgetting their own debts judgment is without mercy I don't, I don't even know how to think about this. I don't know how to think about it. What is it like to stand before the living God and for the God who is the very fountain of mercy to look at you and say, in your case, my judgment will be merciless. No mercy. 
That's what moved William Grimes to pray for God to turn the heart of his merciless master. If they do these things and the wood is green, what will be like when the wood is finally dry? Now, the expectation of James is that his readers are not the merciless. They're among the merciful. They're probably among the poor. They're probably being oppressed by the merciless. They're going to be vindicated in judgment. Their life of mercy following Jesus will boast in judgment as the merciless, proud, mighty ones are, are brought under the heel of God's judgment. But it's still a useful warning, I think, just to think about this from time to time and test the fruit of the gospel in our life. Am I merciful? Because this forgiving mercy, this generous mercy, that's what Jesus does in the human heart. If there's no mercy in your heart, there's no Christ in your heart. If mercy is not flowing from our hearts, we're not spiritually alive, as we'll see next time. I'll close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon about this. Because he, he, he understands. People will look at this and say, man, pastor, you're preaching a very legalistic sermon. There's not much grace here. I, I, if, if you think that, maybe I haven't preached well. I don't think I've left that. I don't think it's a fair conclusion at all from what's been said or what James is saying. But listen to what Spurgeon says, and it might help us. He says, read the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, you don't you react to James. Well, think about Jesus. You know, James is just working out of the Sermon on the Mount in his letter. Read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and judge whether certain people among the pious would be content to hear the like of that preached to them. Can you imagine if someone walked in here and just preached the Sermon on the Mount? Indeed, he says, these pious people would condemn that sermon as containing very little gospel and too much good works. They would condemn it as containing all too much of the legal. But we must never let it be forgotten, Christ's emphasis. The law must be preached. Listen, for what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us, else ours is no gospel at all. What the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us, or else ours is no gospel at all. One of my real encouragements in nearly 10 years at Trinity has been the active interest you all have in mercy ministry, whether it's shoeboxes, whether it's the Helping Hand Rescue Mission, Soundview Pregnancy, or whatever. This has been something I've seen it. I've seen your good works. And it really excites me that right now God is raising up a generation of young adults in the midst of this church and in the broader Christian community here on Long Island for whom mercy ministry is a central focus. I love what Alex and so many others are doing with Christ's calling and just kind of the growing momentum to, to go show mercy in Jesus' name. You know, and I love to see young people in, involved in that. We, if there's one thing this generation of youth does not need, it's more entertainment. Dear God, we've got enough entertainment. We need young Christians and older Christians who are ready to serve beloved, who are ready to go out and to relieve the consequences of sin at, at times great personal, great personal cost, whether that's by just giving or in other cases forgiving. But that is following Jesus. That is following Jesus. Be merciful, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. God grant it. Move in our hearts, we pray, Lord God, to shine the light of your virtue in this way. In Jesus we pray, amen.